All right, y'all. Well, it's good to see everybody here tonight. Um, I know there's events going on, there's tests going on, there's all kinds of things that are going on. So, y'all, I'm excited that you're here. Um, and we're going to keep digging in and going through our series called Gospel Worthy. If you haven't been with us yet, we're doing a series through Philippians. Um, if you have been with us, then you know the study that we're doing. Uh, but anyway, the whole premise, once again, of this study, Gospel Worthy, is, is to live our lives in light of what we know, to live our lives in light of the gospel, to live in such a way that the gospel is lived out in our lives because of Christ being in our lives. And so over the past several weeks, we've worked through a lot of different things that Paul's been talking about. So we've walked through how Paul is, is telling the church of Philippi, keep the main thing the main thing. Live for the advancement of the gospel. He, he lays it out pretty clearly. Later on, after that, he tells them, look, you need to live in such a way that you can stand before the Lord unashamed. Live boldly. Live to glorify the Lord. Then he continues and tells them, look, you need to only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And then he moves out from there saying, the way that you live the gospel-worthy life is first and foremost, you have to do this together. You have to do this in community. And then he goes on from talking about that to where we hit last week, which is really important for what's going on this week. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to have the text up on the screen for you. But... We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 tonight. And so to kind of recap last week, because last week is crucial to be able to understand what's going on this week. And so so last week we talked about Philippians 2, and and we started with Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. And before we read that, verses 3 and 4 really are a theme that Paul is talking about. This is the way your relationships with others should look like. And then for the rest of chapter 2, he really fleshes out what does this look like. So obviously there's something important here about how we live a gospel life, a gospel-centered life, and a life that is gospel-worthy. So verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2 say this. They say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And what we see here is Paul starts off by saying, look, if you're going to live a gospel-worthy life, if you're going to live a life where your life is, is lived out in a manner worthy of the gospel, you have to not have any part of yourself in this. It can't be about yourself. It has to be really looking to others, considering others more significant than yourselves, looking out for their interests. And he backs this up in the most bold way possible by saying, look at Jesus, Look at the mind of Jesus Christ, how he was in heaven and and he emptied himself and he came to earth. And then while he was at earth, he humbled himself and died on the cross for our sins. And he says, look at what God did because of that. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Paul comes out and he gives us this bold statement. And, and really he, he says, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. Look at what God did because of what Jesus did. And now he's flipping and saying, okay, now what about you? You've seen this all throughout Philippians where he tells us something. He gives us a command. He gives us a directive. And then he turns and says, now look at your own life. And y'all, tonight is really going to kind of go back to, to two weeks ago whenever we talk about how maturity in your Christian walk is not a destination, It's not you get saved and now you've reached the destination. Maturity is a direction. It's a continual direction that we walk on our whole entire life. And so Paul's saying, how can you get on this road and how can you live as Christ has called you to live? And so tonight we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. So let's read that and then we'll dive in. It says this, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul says in light of everything that we've just talked about, in light of these bold commands in verses three and four, in light of the example we showed you in Jesus Christ, and then in light of what Jesus Christ has now been exalted as Lord, this is how you should live. He says you need to work out your salvation. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. How do you work out your salvation? What is Paul getting at here to work out your salvation? So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that as we look at your word, as we open your word tonight, God, there's a lot of things going on in all of our lives. But God, I pray tonight that we'd come to your word humbly, Lord, whether we're tired, whether we're energized, whether we have things in our mind, God, whatever it might be, Lord, help us focus on you and what you have for us tonight. God, this is your command, this is your directive right after telling us what you came and did for us. And so, Father, help us not miss it. Help us heed your word tonight, God. Speak through me, and Lord, move in our hearts tonight and move in our lives. I ask all this, Father, in your precious son's name, amen. So how do you work out your salvation? Why are you called to work out your salvation? We're gonna look at four different things. The first reason is this, is you're called to work out your salvation and we work because of what Christ has done. We work because of what Christ has done. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, Paul starts this by saying, therefore. Now, I've heard me say this before. It's really cheesy, but it's an easy way to remember. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Obviously, he's, he's keeping the training of thought that, that he's already started. He's keeping this going. So Paul's saying, therefore, in light of the fact that you're to do nothing in selfish ambition or conceit, in light of the fact that you're supposed to count others more significant than yourselves, in light of the fact that you're supposed to look to others' interests, in light of the fact that we have this example in Jesus of how to do this perfectly, and in light of the fact that he is Lord and Savior, this is what we must do. In light of all this, therefore, based on what I've said, this is what God has done, now this is what you need to do. This is how God has responded by exalting Jesus, now this is how you need to exalt him in your life. And he says, my beloved, the way that you've obeyed now, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Let me start by saying this. Don't get this confused with work for your salvation. What Paul is not saying here is now you need to go and work for your salvation. We believe that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, right? And so through Christ, in his grace, we become believers. So Paul isn't saying you become a believer by his grace, now go earn it. No, grace and earning never go together. You can't have grace and then go earn it. It doesn't work that way. But something that we don't talk about enough maybe is that with grace, there should be effort and admiration because of the grace, And so what Paul isn't saying here, he isn't saying go and now earn the grace that you've been given. He's going now and apply yourself because of the grace that you've been given. We aren't working to earn our salvation. We're working as a response to our salvation. Now, this is an extreme example, but I want you to imagine this. Imagine that 
There's a guy who, who he decides to go to a prison. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lot of questions with this, but just go with it. So there's a guy who he goes to a prison, and he goes to an area of solitary confinement, and he goes to this area, and once he's there, he says, I want to find, show me the people that are on death row. And so he goes, and he finds the people that are on death row, and he goes to the guy who's going to be executed the soonest. And the guy who's going to be executed the soonest is a guy who's going to be executed the very next day. And so he goes up to this guy, and he says, hey, I'm going to be killed in your place. I'm going to take your spot. He doesn't give any reason, doesn't give anything like that. He says, I'm going to die in your place for you. Even though you're the one who committed the crime, I'm not the one. Even though this is your sentence, this isn't mine, I'm going to die in your place. So let's say that this happens. And this guy does die in his place, and the other guy gets freed. So the question is, is can the guy that's been freed, can he now go and repay this guy for what he's done for him? No. There's no way he can fully repay him for what he's done for him. But what can he do? He cannot go out and live the exact same way he did before. He can go out and not do exactly what what he did in order to get him into jail in the first place. He can go out and he can live differently because of what this guy has done for him. In essence, he can never earn his freedom. He can never earn what he did. He can never repay what he did. But his effort will show his appreciation for what this guy did for him. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, in light of what Christ has done, in light of this example, you should go and live out of appreciation for what Christ has done for you. Therefore, because of what God has done, you now should go and do. You should go and work out your salvation. Now, what Paul's talking specifically about here is not salvation in general. Salvation is a one-time event. It happens whenever you surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But what he is talking about is this word sanctification. And sanctification is an ongoing, lifelong process. I heard a definition that I love. Sanctification is the process of you becoming in practice what God declares you to be in truth. In other words, you become in practice what God says you are. God says you are holy, so you act holy. You grow in holiness. God says you are righteous, so you live righteously. God says you are forgiven, so you live forgiven. God says you are free from the bondage of sin, so go and live that way. Don't live in the bondage of sin and death. So in other words, becoming in practice what God declares you to be in truth. J.A. Mott, your one scholar, says this. He says, your salvation isn't something that you must go and attain but it is something that you must explore and enjoy more fully. Your salvation isn't something that you go and earn or that you attain, but it is something that you explore more fully. I want you to think of it like this. So uh, I think I've told a little bit of this story before, but whenever I was a freshman in college, I remember I still was on the flip phone life, I think, um, or had a a razor or something. I don't even know what it was. I just remember I wasn't on the iPhone style. That wasn't my my thing then. Well, uh, I'm in a class my freshman year, and this guy beside me has this weird, bulky touchscreen phone that he calls an iPhone. And I can remember verbatim saying, dude, that's the dumbest type of phone I've ever heard in my life. That's not going to work. Obviously, I'm a prophet, right? And so anyway, I, I, I look at this phone. I'm like, okay, that's weird. Anyway, later on, as you would know, I get an iPhone, right? Well, before the iPhone, most of my time on my phone was spent doing two things, calling people, rarely, texting people, often. That was what what my phone was for, is I texted all the time. That's what I used it for. Well, as I got an iPhone, an iPhone can do so much more, right? You look at it, and you can do all kinds of things with it, whether it's looking at GPS stuff, whether it's all the apps that came out. And y'all, since I've got an iPhone, it's crazy all the things that happen, or that have happened, the way that you really have to learn to use it and the easier ways to use it and all the different things that you can do with an iPhone now, all the apps that come out. You get updates all the time. Now, half the time they may crash your phone, but you get updates and there's new things now for you to learn. And the more that you use your phone, 
The more you discover to use it properly, the better you learn to use it, the more you figure out you can do with it. So it doesn't just become a phone for two simple things. It becomes a phone that for many of us, we do so many different things on our phone. There was a guy this week that I was talking to. He asked me to help him figure out Bluetooth on his phone. And I was like, here, let me see your phone. And so, you know, I kind of swiped up and hit the Bluetooth. And he was like, whoa, whoa, what did you just do? I was like, swipe up on the phone and you get, and he's like, I've never seen that before. And so I got to show him the wonderful world of the easy little screen or whatnot there. And so anyway, as you have a phone, you learn more things about it. And you know, obviously this isn't a one-to-one, but what Paul is saying is just, just being given salvation. That isn't the finish line. Now you're called to, to enjoy it more fully by exploring the effects of your salvation. And what that means is by living out who Christ has called you to be, you learn more about, man, this is who God says I am. Oh, I do have victory over this sin. Oh, I can live this certain way. And you learn more about who you are in Christ and how you can live that out. And you'll see that because of what God has done, because of what Jesus did, you'll be able to see all the amazing things that you're able to do. Now, this is a bold command to say, okay, because of what Christ has done, go and live likewise. Go and work out your salvation. But the beauty is, is Paul follows this up by saying you're not alone in doing this. So the first thing he says is work out your salvation. We work because of what he has done. And the second thing we see is we work because of what he is doing. So we work because of what he's done. And secondly, we work because of what he is doing. Look at what he says again in verse 12 and 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And look at what he adds next. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation because of what God has done but work out your salvation because of what God is doing. He's saying work out your salvation for God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Y'all, God God works in us on two very aspects that it says right here. He works on our wills. In other words, the want to, the desires of our hearts. And he works in our actions, our will and our work in the way that we actually live out our life. You see, we don't become a follower of Jesus and then God says, okay, now go and, and good luck. No, we have his spirit that works in our hearts and God is constantly working in our hearts to help us in this journey. And so the question with this is how are you and I responding to the promptings of God? If what Paul is saying here, he's saying work out your salvation because God is working in you. Work out your salvation because God is working in you. Here we see something really interesting. We see divine sovereignty. We see God has done this for you. You have salvation, but how do you work this out? Well, God is working in you, but he's not gonna do it without you. The sanctification process is not all on God and it is not all on you. Sometimes we have this idea that however far we go in the faith is gonna be based on our own determination and our own strength. But that's not the case. The only way that we can actually live for Christ is because God is working in us. But at the same time, God isn't just gonna make us robots after we become followers of him and just sanctify us. That's not the way it works. It's a twofold thing. Many of you have maybe heard it like this. If you're reading Growing Up, he talks about this. This is in several books. Um, but, but a better way to think of this is, imagine if you were to cross a river If you have, uh, and and crossing this river is basically your spiritual journey from from the time you become a follower of Jesus to the destination to whenever you die, essentially. The Christian life is not you're sitting on a raft and you have a paddle and you have to do everything in your power to paddle, to paddle. It's all up to you to get from this side to that side. That's not the Christian life. It's not all up to you. But then it's not the exact opposite. It's not a ski boat. 
You don't just crank the engine and then just go 90 miles an hour across the water. It's not that way either. What it is is it's like a sailboat. And what you see with a sailboat is, is there's two aspects of a sailboat. You have to have the person that's in the boat actually set up the sails, and then the wind actually has to be blowing. So who does the work? Is it the person who's setting the sail, or is it the person who's doing the wind? Well, the actual work is being done by the wind, but the only way to get anywhere is the person on the boat actually has to set the sails. And y'all, this is the truth in the spiritual life as well, is, is God works in us. God works in us whenever we put ourselves in a posture where he can move us. We should work out our own salvation precisely because God is always working in us via his spirit. This is why Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Honestly, at first, this should kind of be a weird, a weird saying, like work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is Paul exactly saying here? Well, I love the way one guy says, he says, the trembling he experiences is the attitude Christians are to have in pursuing this goal. It is a healthy fear of offending God through disobedience and an awe and respect for his majesty and his holiness. So the first thing, guys, we need to understand is that God is working in us. Whenever we are not responding in that, whenever we are not working out our salvation, what this guy is saying, and I would agree with this, we really are offending God. Hear this, God wants to do amazing things in your life. God wants to work through you, but he's not gonna do it without you. That's not the way that God works. We don't harp on doing spiritual disciplines and reading God's word and praying and living this out just so that you can do it. No, this is the way that God moves. If there's a pathway that God works on, it's the pathway of spiritual disciplines and seeking him and seeking to live this out. Another way to say this instead of fear and trembling is this idea of reverence and awe. It's a humbling feeling of, God, you, you choose to work through me. That should humble us. Your desire is to work through me. That should humble us. It should make us want God to work in our lives. And this, this fear aspect is the fear of missing out on what God is gonna do in our lives. It's a fear of literally not allowing God to do in our lives what he wants to do in our lives. You know, if I were to use the word or say the word FOMO, my guess is most all, if not all of you, would know what FOMO is, the fear of missing out. And the fear of missing out is a real struggle for our generation, right? That's why you hear people that, that might always be on Instagram or social media or something, even if they're not around, because they don't want to miss something. Or if there's an event going on, they got to be there, because they don't want to miss something. Or they always have to be around people, because they don't want to miss something. And it's this idea of this fear of missing out. And I guess there's really another way to say this, but what Paul essentially is talking about here is he's talking about holy FOMO. Really, it's a holy FOMO. It's this idea of I don't want to miss out on what God wants to do in my life. It's a holy FOMO. It's this idea that Jesus wants to work in your life. And a matter of fact, it says that God is working in you. God has plans for you. God has a desire for you. God has a goal for you. You're not at tech by chance. You're not in your major by chance. You're not in your classroom by chance. You're not here by chance. You're not in your sorority, fraternity. The list can go on and on. You're not in your workplace by chance. God wants to use you. God wants you to know him and wants you to fully know you. Y'all think about it like this. This should change the way that we think about everything in our Christian walk. For example, whenever we think of a quiet time, of spending alone time with God and reading and praying and memorizing and meditating or fasting or whatever these disciplines are, we should fear of missing out. 
You see, the legalist will look at a quiet time and say, oh, I missed my quiet time today, therefore I'm not going to make a good grade on my test. I missed my quiet time today, therefore God's going to smite me. Like God's the one up there saying, oh, you didn't get this check, let me go ahead and knock you on your back and make you do this. That's not the way God works. Now, the liberalist on the opposite side would say, you know, God's God, he does what he's going to do, whether I do it or not, God knows my heart, he knows my intentions. That's not right either. The heart of a disciple, whenever he misses out on spending time with Jesus, is that's what he feels. Whenever he misses a quiet time, it isn't he's afraid of what's going to happen. He goes, I missed out on time with Christ today. I had an appointment where God is wanting to talk to me, and I missed out on that. And it's honestly a fear, a sadness of saying, Lord, you had something you wanted to say to me today, and I wasn't there for it. Do you see the, the change of mind there? Of saying, God, I know you want to speak into me. I know you want me to see something. I know you want to move in my life, and I didn't meet with you. You can look at this in all kinds of ways. Is it God's will for you to to honestly be a witness at school? Yes. And so if you're not being a witness at school, whose fault is that? It's not God's. God's will is that. God wants to work through you. You're just not cooperating with him. At your workplace, God wants to work through you there. And if he's not doing that, then it's because you're not cooperating with him. God wants to work through you in sorority, fraternity, whatever it might be. And if we're not making a difference, it's not because God isn't wanting to work in us. It's because we're not working alongside him. To go back to the analogy, we're not setting the sail and saying, Lord, where? What are you wanting me to do here? How can I learn more about you? We're not working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And y'all, if you look back at Jesus' example, the example that we keep coming back to, and I told y'all this last week, Christianity isn't about read your Bible, pray, do this, do this, do this. Christianity is about dying to yourself, denying yourself, surrendering your life to Christ daily, and following him. That's what the Christian life is about. That, those are the marks of somebody who's a follower of Christ. And so if you look at those, if you look at your life and you say, what about denying myself? What about surrendering my all? What about following Jesus? Lord, where am I not cooperating with you? Paul is saying we should be afraid of missing out what God's wanting to do in us because he wants to work in us, but are we cooperating? So we see work out your salvation. The first we see we work this out because of what he has done. We work because of what he is doing. And then thirdly, we work because of what is at stake. We work because of what is at stake. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says this, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about how Paul said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And he gives us this bold directive. And honestly, what you expect next is for him to tell us how to go and live worthy of the gospel. And if you're me, I'm expecting him to say, go and do this, go and do this, go and act on this. But what he says is go together. Be in a body of believers. Don't go at this alone. And honestly, for me, it was rather shocking to go, oh, so that's the first thing he wants us to think about. That's the first thing he wants us to go to. And honestly, here, Paul just finishes this massive statement of work out your salvation. Because of what God has done, you should work out your salvation. And because of what God is doing, you can work out your salvation. Then you think he would move to, okay, what does this look like? You think he would say, okay, now you need to do this. You need to get in God's word. You need to go and be this witness or all these things. And he goes to don't grumble or complain or get in disputes, honestly, in a direction that 
I really would want to go, really? That's the first thing you want to say to us? After giving us this directive to work out your salvation, the first thing you want to say is do all things without grumbling or disputing? Obviously, there's something significant here. Obviously, there's something really significant here. If this, wants to be the, if this is the first thing that he brings out and says. And you know, honestly, if we look at this, and the more I thought about this, we are complainers. In our nature, we complain a lot. We whine a lot. We argue and we fight more than we probably even know. We let little things really affect us. We let little things really bother us. To show you that I am definitely talking about myself as well. It was less than two months ago. I don't know Emily's smiling because she knows what I'm going to say. So I was at the house one day and I told Emily, I said something and I was like, you know what? I'm sick of this. She's like, what? I was like, am I whining a lot? Do you feel like I'm being whiny? And in a gracious way, my wife, you know, yes, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the, yeah, that's what you're doing. And I'm like, I feel like I've just been whining and complaining a lot lately. And she goes, okay, well, how do you want me to help you in that? And I was like, if you feel like I'm whining or complaining, I don't know, just say Gouda. She goes, what? Say Gouda? And I'm like, you know, like the phrase, you want a little cheese to go with that wine? And I was like, I'm thinking of Gouda because, this will take my man card from, because, you know, and she's the man. She has the funny line where she talks about cheese and her favorite's Gouda. So just say Gouda. Nobody else is going to know what's going on. If, there's, if I'm whining or if I'm complaining, just say Gouda. And y'all, it wasn't less than a week later, I'm talking about something and she goes, Gouda. Like it was about that soft. Like, you know, let me test the waters with this. And y'all, for me, I've told y'all this before, one of the ways that I really work out what's going on in my heart is I trash talk myself. I make myself recognize how silly it is. And Gouda reminds me, okay, that's kind of silly, but what I'm doing is dumb. What do I have to whine and complain about? Why am I whining and complaining? Y'all, this word here, grumbling. For the church of Philippi, Paul is saying grumbling, and they would have immediately thought of the grumblings of Israel in the wilderness. This word grumbling has a direct attachment to the Old Testament where you see the Israelites who grumbled and grumbled and whined and grumbled and whined. And to recount that, think about this. All of Israel, God's people are in Egypt. They're in slavery by the Egyptians. God comes in, does a mighty thing after they cry out to him. You look, I can't remember if it's Exodus 2 or 3, but it ends the chapter by saying, and they cried out to God and God heard them. And so God is reacting to their cry. He goes and he saves them in a miraculous way. 10 plagues doing all these things, gets them out of Egypt, gets them to the Red Sea. Then they think they're going to die. And then God saves them in a miraculous way across the Red Sea. They get to the opposite side. And then literally all you see for the rest of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, a little bit in Leviticus, besides a lot of the other stuff it talks about, is you just see these grumblings over and over again. They whine because of their food. They want food. Then they whine because of the type of food they have. And then they whine because they don't have water. And then they whine because, and literally all you hear throughout is just this grumbling, this whining, this grumbling, this whining. And y'all, as I read this, anytime I read through the Old Testament, there's so many times where I'm sitting here going, man, are y'all idiots? Like, really? Do you not remember what God just did for you? Like, have you already lost faith? Do you already not trust him? Do you really already think that God has left you? Do you really think he's led you out here to die? Think about everything he's already done for you. Like, what is your problem? And essentially, I want to ask them, why in the world would you ever complain after what God has done for you? And honestly, what he's currently and continually doing for you. He's feeding you every single day. He's with you in every single way, providing all of your needs. What do you have to complain about? 
And even by saying that, that's an indictment against myself. Look at where Paul positions this command. Right after he just says, look at what Jesus has done for you. Right after he just says, look at what God has done because of what Jesus has done. Right after he says, work out your salvation, he says, do not complain about it. You don't have a reason to complain, no matter what you're going through. We don't have a reason to complain or whine or be in a disputing type manner because of what God has already done in our lives. Don't we realize that, that, that this sanctifying work is hard work? Y'all, we complain whenever we have trials. We complain whenever a class is hard. We complain whenever a workplace is hard. We complain whenever we don't like a teacher. We complain whenever we have a problem with someone else. Twice already, I told Mr. Mike that I was going to talk about complaining tonight, and twice he said, is that a complaint after something I said? It's like, my eye keeps twitching. It's driving me crazy. Is that a complaint? I'm like, be quiet, Mr. Mike. You know, like, like all these things, I'm complaining, even about the small things. And it's true, if we don't recognize it, we complain about all of these things. And y'all, we really don't have a right to. If we really believe that God is working, if we really believe that God is moving, if we really believe that every step that we walk in his direction, he has got planned and calculated for us, and he's working in and for us for our good, then what do we have to complain about? One of my favorite quotes is by Chuck Swindoll. And he says, trials are the gates that we have to go through to get where God wants us to be. It's that simple. Trials are the gates that we have to go through to get where God wants us to be. Think about once again where Paul's at while he writes this. He's sitting in prison, chained to a Roman guard, and he's writing them saying, hey, don't complain. Paul's in prison. He could have complained, but what did he do instead? He chose to use that position, that situation that he was in, to worship the Lord. And what you see at the beginning is the whole imperial guard, all 9,000 of these trained and very influential Roman soldiers have heard about why I'm here and have heard about Jesus. Think about the example given just above, Jesus. We don't have an example where Jesus complained. We don't have an example where Jesus whined about what God asked him to do. No, we see that he surrendered himself to the one who judges justly. He obeyed God. Not with complaining, not out of resentment, but because of his love for him. And so y'all ask again, what do we have to complain about? The way that we move from complaining to the place we need to do, to the place we need to be is by one word, it's by gratitude. It's by complacing our complaining with gratitude. Let me tell you one reason never to complain about school is because so many people wish they could go and they can't. I remember one mission trip, I was in Haiti and I was complaining about school to one of the guys there and he had a girl come over and via a translator said, what is your dream? And she said, would be to go to school in America, to have opportunity. And I found out real quick, it's pretty sad that I was complaining about my major. What do we have to complain about the class that we're in? You know what, y'all, we get to be here. And look at, look at what Paul is saying even in this. He's saying it is by this, by not complaining, that you shine as lights in this world. Complaining is that pervasive. Whining is that pervasive. Disputions are really that invasive or pervasive. And, and so what you have to see is by not doing that, Paul is literally saying this is how you shine. This is how you show people something different. Whenever you have hardship, show people something different. At your workplace, don't jump in and complain or whine about your boss. Use it as an opportunity to be sanctified. Use it as an opportunity to let Christ work through you. Use it as an opportunity to show people something different. We don't need to complain or whine or join in these things. And y'all, I think y'all would agree that one of the reasons many people are turned off by, by Christians is because of the complaining because of the church splits, because of the whining, because of the griping, because of the disputing. 
Remember, we're the visual representation of what God's supposed to look like to the world. How we handle ourselves should reflect what we believe about God. And Paul says complaining and whining is this important. This is actually how you shine. And I'll end this thought with this. If what he has done for us in the past is any indication of what he will do for us in the future, what do we have to complain about? What do we have to whine about? If what he has done in the past is any indication of what he is going to do for us in the future, what do we have to complain about? What do we have to whine about? Work out your salvation. We work because of what he has done. We work because of what he is doing and we work because of what is at stake, our witness. And then lastly, we work because of the joy that is set before us. Look at verse 16 through 18. He says, holding, on to the, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul ends this by saying, look, if you work this out, I know I can stand before the Lord one day unashamed for my investment in you. If you work this out, you one day can stand before the Lord unashamed for what you did with that investment that came to you. And I I just imagine Paul, I just see a picture of Paul just smiling here saying, I can't wait to stand before the Lord and say, I didn't labor in vain over those people. They listened. They worked it out. They did it. They weren't just hearers. They actually lived it out. And he's saying, I have joy as someone who's poured into you. And he's also saying, notice the blessing of having somebody pour into you. I don't know if y'all have seen this on Instagram or whatnot, but I know this was a thing for a little while. There were, somebody would put something, they say, hashtag mood, right? And they'd put smiley face or sad face or crying face or all these other things. Y'all, literally, the first time I read this, I was like, hashtag mood. This is where Paul's at. He gets to the end of all this and he's smiling going, I know it's not gonna be in vain because I can rejoice in you. I'm giving you all these directives and I can rejoice in you. And y'all, what I wanna ask you is understand, there's been an investment placed in your life by the people who have poured into you, by the friends who have poured into you, by your parents if they've poured into you, by your pastors who've poured into you, by your small group leaders who've poured into you, and the list can go on and on. That's an investment. And I wanna run the race because I wanna make Jesus proud, but Paul's saying also run the race to make the people that have poured into you proud. I don't wanna be someone who's run this race in vain. A lot of people have spent time with me and poured into me, and I wanna be in heaven one day saying thank you and then saying I don't regret pouring into you. So Paul essentially saying is make my joy complete. Let's rejoice in not doing this in vain. Run this race well. And he's saying run because of the joy that is set before you. This goes back to the beginning, to the idea of being able to say, I will not be ashamed. Christ will be honored and glorified. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I will live a gospel-worthy life. So we see the four things, that we work because of what he has done. We work because of what he is doing. We work because of what is at stake. We work because of the joy that is set before us. Y'all, honestly, I've gone through this whole thing, and I just want to ask Paul, but how? Like, tell me what this looks like. And I think, once again, I'm so Americanized, I want a list. 
I want do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And what you notice is Paul doesn't say do this. Paul says be this. Paul says be thankful. Be a gracious person. Be grateful. Paul says do this. Give all of your effort and your faith. Give 100%. Be disciplined. Live joyfully. Live on mission. He's saying this is what you must do. He doesn't go out and say, read your Bible and you will have completed this. He goes, no, are you grateful? He doesn't go, okay, as long as you give this much time to God and you start coming to awaken and you're in a small group and you're doing these things, he's saying, okay, do, this is what you have to do. No, he's saying, give me your 100%. Once again, remember, Jesus gave us his all. And the list is that, give him your all. Are you that type of person? Are you thankful? Are you grateful? Are you giving Christ your 100%? Are you living this out? Are you disciplined? Are you joyful? Are you living on mission? Y'all, several years ago, I was reading through the book of John, and I came to this verse, 1 John 2, 28. It says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Yo, I can remember, this was actually more than several years ago. I can remember whenever I read over this, there were things in my life, I don't know why, for the first time it struck me and I said, if Jesus came back right now, are there things in my life I'd be ashamed of? And yo, I can think of two things in my life or areas of my life where this verse helped me conquer them through Christ. To say, you know what? Abide in him so that when he comes, I may have confidence. I want to be excited whenever Jesus comes back. I want to be excited if he comes back. I don't want to go, oh, he caught me in this sin whenever he came back. Oh, I I didn't get these things done and he's already come back. Oh, I was worried too much about these other things. Whenever Jesus comes back, I want to stand boldly and say, you caught me in the middle running this race as hard as I possibly can. And this is what Paul's saying is run this. Work out your salvation because of what he has done. Work out your salvation because of what he is doing. Work it out because of what's at stake. And work it out because of the joy that's in the end. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the truth that it will never return empty. God, that as we talk about your word, as we listen to your word, God, as we read through your word, Lord, you are working. And God, even tonight, we can be confident that you are working through your word because because it's being taught, God, because we're looking through it, God. You desire for us to know you more. You desire for us to live for you more. You desire for us to see the riches that are involved in that. You desire us to really understand your parable whenever you say that, that the kingdom of God is like a person who finds this, all this wealth, this treasure in a field and sells everything and goes and gets the field. God, you call for our all. And Lord, I pray that we would give that. God, I pray that we'd see the reasons that are outlined in your truth. God, help us evaluate ourselves accordingly. And Lord, I ask all this in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. Y'all, as usual, I want to give you a chance to respond as they're playing. And whether it's where you're at, whether it's sitting, whether it's coming and talking to me or Emily or Mike or Jacob or whoever's going to be in the back, I just want to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to respond in, in a little bit of different ways tonight. So one, the first question is, this message doesn't apply if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. This message doesn't apply. You can't work out what you don't have. And so maybe tonight you're looking, you're going, Merrick, you know, Jesus Christ isn't my Savior and Lord. 
I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you want to come and talk with me. Maybe you want to meet me afterwards. Maybe you want to write it on a card. I'd love to, to, to meet with you. But that's the first thing. Secondly, if you say, Merrick, I know I've surrendered my life to Christ. I know I'm a follower of his. The first way I want you to respond tonight is via worship. To worship him. Think about what he has done. In the midst of all the chaos going around, we forget it becomes normal. Think about what he has done. Think about the fact that he wants to use you. He's got a plan for you. He cares that much. Worship him in that. Praise him in that. Thank them in that. Admire him in that. The third thing I want to ask you to do tonight is action. I want you to look at your life and see how are you not working out your salvation with fear and trembling with reverence? How are you not allowing the spirit to work in your life? Maybe there's desires you won't let it go. Maybe there's idols you won't give up. Maybe there's things in your life you know you need to do, but you are not cooperating with God. Look, if we don't act on what God has already given us, he's not gonna show us more. Reading and studying and getting in all this whenever God already has shown us sin that's in our life, it's not gonna help us grow in our faith. Merely it'll just be an indictment that we're not already doing what he's given us. And so where in your life tonight do you need to heed to what God is saying to you tonight? Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to act. Maybe as you look at this, you say, you know, some of those character traits, they're not mine. I'm not a thankful person. I'm not giving my 100% of my faith. I'm not grateful. Maybe tonight you just need to repent and ask the Lord to help you in that. And lastly, I want to ask, are you running the race in such a way that if you were to end that tonight, if Christ were to come back tonight, Would you be able to stand confidently unashamed? That should be our goal, y'all. That if we get, if Christ comes back right now, it's in the midst of the run. So I want to encourage you tonight, worship the Lord, respond to him, sitting, standing, singing, sitting where you're at, coming and talking to me, however you have to respond. I just want to encourage you to respond.